Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're talking about poetry, the profound emotions it stirs, and the exhilaration and joy it often brings. First, Calvin Trillin joins us in the studio. The renowned novelist, essayist, and poet will tell us about his new poetry collection for children, No Fair, No Fair. Trillin's New Yorker colleague, the brilliant cartoonist Roz Chaz, illustrated the book. Later, we'll talk by phone with two high school students who were honored as National Student Poets in 2016, as well as an educator who will speak about the innovative poetry program in his Massachusetts school district. First, drumroll please, Calvin Trillin. Hi, Calvin. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. I've been a fan for years and years and years, so this is a great honor for me. Uh, let me start by asking you, I, I know that this is your first poetry collection for children, and I wanted to ask how the process differs from writing poems for adults about current events or presidential elections, say. Well, one of the differences is that for adults, often the humor is in an odd word or maybe even a foreign word. Uh, like, uh, I think the shortest poem I ever wrote was called something like The Philosophical, Societal, and Political Implications of the O.J. Simpson Trial. And the poem was, O.J., Oy Vey. And um, sometimes uh, it's an unusual word, and so you have to be sort of conscious with children of which words they know and which words they don't know. You often take a whimsical view of the world in all of your work. Uh, Were you funny as a kid? I had a sort of epiphany. I was a shy little boy, and in Sunday school in about sixth grade, we uh, were studying the Psalms, and we came to the phrase of, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand lose its cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. And I found myself standing up with my arms sort of dangling, saying, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand lose its cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. And every, I was kicked out of class, and everybody laughed. Oh and so I thought, hey, that, that's, that's good, satisfying. Could you tell us how you're, about your interactions with your grandchildren and how some of the poems in No Fair, No Fair were inspired by them? Well, uh, the whole idea was inspired by my younger grandson, Nady, who was sort of slow getting dressed one day while I was staying with him. And... Um, his mother, my daughter Sarah, said, Nady, uh, pull, uh, put on your pants. And I found myself singing. I just didn't say it. I sang it. Uh, oh, this is such a silly rule that people must wear pants to school. A better rule, a wise man said, was wear your underpants instead. And that became sort of part of the book. And, and uh, um, I think... 
Also, Nady liked it because it had the word underpants in it. I once talked on television about my theory that the so-called shoe bomber, who was a really uh, clumsy and, and amateurish guy and described as very suggestible, my theory was that it was a prank. And I, and I said, you'll know I'm right if the next bomber they catch because of his M.O. is called the underwear bomber. And that turned out to be true. But what impressed my grandson Toby was when they showed him the clip from television, he said, Bobo said underwear on television. So it had the desired effect. That's great. Why did you decide to write poems rather than stories? Well, it just came about, I think, accidentally. I've, I've always been what uh, I think of as a special occasion poet. I mean, kind of the birthday rehearsal dinner sort of poet. And I've never actually written a children's book, a story that, that was published. And um, so I thought, well, I'll just try poetry. Uh, and actually, actually it, was, it, it was the suggestion uh, of, uh, of Scholastic that I, that I try to do a bunch of poems. Great. Well, it worked out well. <laughs> um, it, this collection includes a blue hyena, a helicopter that takes kids to school, and a boy who gnaws on pigeon wings. I love that. How does mixing the extraordinary with the ordinary help you tell a story to kids? I think kids like the extraordinary. I mean, their, their lives are pretty set and um, routine. I think they like something odd. I have a blue hyena uh, in there, and he actually speaks. And that sort of goes against what I've always thought was, why do animals speak in children's literature? The, the ch I'm surprised that children don't expect to go to the zoo and find the bear talking back to them because they have a sort of a uneasy grip on reality to start with. And, and somehow we just assume that it's okay for Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and everybody else to talk. Uh, but I, I needed the blue hyena to say something. That started out as a poem for a little girl I met in Berlin. And um, her name was Nina. So blue hyena was obvious. It was the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the hyena is very eloquent. Right. Yeah, he's, he, he makes his, gets his point across with a few words. <laughs> now, the illustrations in here are done by the great Roz Chas. Yeah, she's a genius. Um, we were very fortunate to get her to do the illustrations. And uh, I was thinking about the illustrations I once did, or actually twice, we did it two years in a row, a, um, a charity evening uh, in San Francisco to raise money for legal services for children. Uh, I was interviewed on stage with Robin Williams, and um, everybody said, well, he's a great comedian, but you don't want to get on stage with him because he'll just blow you, which might have been true with another comedian, but he was, he was very courteous. And when I listened to the tapes, I realized... Uh, what we were doing without having planned it was that I was laying down the melody line and he was doing the riffs. And that's pretty much what Roz did with her illustration. So you Im imagine something in prose and she expands it with her drawings. So it's more than just illustration. I think it's a different level of storytelling. Absolutely. Right. I, I agree. I think it really brings it to life, especially right. for young children and with their right. imaginations. Uh, I was lucky. 
It was lucky. <laughs> As the title No Fair, No Fair indicates, you seize on the endless complaints that kids have. You even have categorized them. There are the morning complaints, I noticed, right. the school complaints, and then the evening complaints. What is so funny about kids complaining? To me, one of the things that's funny is that kids' complaints are often within the context of their lives very reasonable. I mean, who actually wants to be strapped into a stroller? It's irritating. Um, or who wants a baby brother? When you, if, you're, if you're two or three years old and you're the head of the house for two or three years, why, why should you be expected to welcome this intruder um, and this time-consuming, uh, attention-consuming intruder? Uh, I had a friend who had about a three-year-old little boy and they had another little boy, and and the the older one seemed fine for a few weeks. And then one morning he came in to his parents' bedroom and said, I think this would be a good day to send Timmy back to his real mommy and daddy. And <laughs> that, see, that seems to me a very reasonable way of looking at it. So so part of what, what seems odd about kids' complaints is um, is that they're very reasonable to them and not very reasonable to us. And how have your own grandchildren reacted to the book so far? Well, uh, the the best reader among them, or the the constant reader among them, uh, the fastest reader, so so fast that they started quizzing her on books, her parents, to make sure she was actually reading the books. Um, she, I showed her the manuscript, and she graded me. She gave me three, two, one. I I can't remember the exact grades, or that's, uh, or I would not reveal the exact grades. Um, but I do remember that she thought that the poem about learning to tie your shoes was too short, so I added another stanza. Uh, so so she was a good critic. Ah, oh, I love that one. I love mm. that it gets you. You have to be able to go places in the yeah. world. You have can't to be run able to away t- if your shoes are untied. <laughs> exactly. Could you tell our listeners about your own childhood in Kansas City and your relationship with your older sister, Suki? Well, it was brutal. Uh, my, I have an older sister, Suki the Oppressor, and um, I often tell the story of going on road trips with Suki the Oppressor in, in the back seat, and there was a line drawn down the middle of the back seat, invisible line, or at least she said it was the middle. And my father, we usually went west. I lived in Kansas City, which the real estate people will call equally convenient to either coast. But but we usually went west. My father would be in the front seat pointing out the buttes and the mesas, and I would be in the back seat trying to guard my territory. And I compared it to geopolitical borders during times of tension, like the border between the old Soviet Union and Finland. And I played Finland. My father said something that sounds a little retro now, but he was traditionally brought up. He said to me something that really uh, damaged my side. He said, we do not hit girls. You will never hit your sister again. And my sister, Suki the Oppressor, was not visited with a similar complaint. So uh, I was uh, not just Finland, I was a unilaterally disarmed Finland. Uh, I now think if I hadn't been on guard constantly from a sister with expansionist backseat policies, 
I might know the difference between a butte and a mesa. <laughs> um, Suki re- recently had her 80th birthday, and um, we made a little, she had a party in Kansas City at a time we couldn't be there, so we made a video, and the kids, my grandchildren, sang a song I wrote. Uh, but I opened it by saying, Suki, it has occurred to me that your 80th birthday might be an appropriate time to forgive you once and for all for attempting to throw me down the laundry chute in 1937. But then I thought, there's time. Well, I guess we're not going to let bygones be bygones, huh? Not yet. I'm not no, ready no. to let go yet. <laughs> it's good. Another 80 years. What did you major in in college? I majored in English. You did? I probably should have majored in history, but I majored in English, and uh, um, I guess that was maybe the the largest major where I went to school, so it was, uh, it seemed to me connected with writing, but it was mainly connected with reading, as it turns out, and uh, I my anxiety dreams are still about getting up in the morning knowing that I don't actually know anything for the tests on a course that was called something like 17th century po- poets except the ones you've heard of. Like, had a name something like that. They didn't call it exactly that. But that that's what I think I, I'm not going to be able to pass. <laughs> I wanted you to read a poem from the book, and I chose The Grandpa Rule is in effect. I don't know if you can, want to read that and anything else of your choosing. Yeah, that's fine. Mm-hmm. That The Grandpa Rule is in effect is a lot of these poems come from my experiences with my grandchildren or, or even my children. Um um, even the ones where I'm somebody else, like the guy. I always have found when I first meet a kid and um, where I'm sort of th- trying to think of an icebreaker, I say, who is the nastiest, awfulest, meanest kid in your whole class? And you'd be surprised how often the answer is Jason. I'm, n- I'm not sure why. Um, but there's a guy in here who asked that constantly, who was the awfulest kid in your class? <laughs> and and he, I made myself an uncle, kind of a, a objectionable uncle. I love that one too. This okay. is called The Grandpa Rule is in Effect, and we do have the Grandpa Rule in my family. I'm not surprised. Whenever Grandpa's minding us, there's just one rule we must respect, to do what we would like to do. The Grandpa Rule is in Effect. No time we have to be in bed. That sort of thing's what we expect. When Grandpa is the one in charge, the Grandpa rule is in effect. To spoil you is my job, he says, a job that I will not neglect. All rules are off except for one. The Grandpa rule is in effect. Our mom pretends she doesn't know, not even if the house seems wrecked, when she returns. But she must know the Grandpa rule was in effect. That's great. Well, let me ask you about, I know you have two daughters. I've right. read a lot of your essays right. about traveling around the country and right. your eating adventures. What were they like in the backseat? <laughs> they were pretty well behaved. Uh, and um, my older daughter is a very sweet person. And um, I uh, I was worried about them for a while. I thought, how are they going to make it in deli lines in New York? I mean, they're They'll lose their place. They're too polite. They're too nice to each other. 
Uh, but they seem to have gotten along all right. Uh, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I, we're just republishing a book I did in 1984 called Killings, which is a little different from this book. Uh, it's about it's uh, nonfiction stories of of sudden death of one sort or another, and it was published originally in the 80s, and we're republishing it with some additional stories um, uh, next month in April, the beginning of April. It's called Killings, and then I'm working on a a stage adaptation of a book I wrote about my wife. Uh, it's called About Alice. We're hoping to, that'll be on next season. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you uh, so very much for talking with us. Thank you. Now, Maya Ishbarin and Gopal Raman join us by phone. Maya is a senior at Milton High School in Georgia. In 2016, she was honored as a national student poet at the White House by then First Lady Michelle Obama. Gopal is a senior at St. Mark's School in Dallas, Texas. Like Maya, he was also named a national student poet in 2016. The National Student Poets Program, the nation's highest honor for young poets, selects five poets annually, each representing a different geographic region of the country. The students are chosen from a national pool of more than 20,000 poetry submissions. The five winning poets serve as literary ambassadors for a year, sharing their passion for poetry through workshops and public readings. Gopal and Maya have also won awards for their poetry from the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards program. Each year, the scholarship program recognizes the outstanding work of creative teens around the country in grades 7 through 12. First, to give you a sense of how incredible these student poets are, here's Maya reading one of her poems, Linguistics, about not being able to speak her mother tongue Tamil. Linguistics for my mother. Ma, I haven't spoken Tamil in three years. Call it forgetting or just prenatal Americanization. Some God must have known I was a child of loose change, of ambiguity, of everything more confused than it should be, of conjoined twins snipped off the cord together, of the love of a language of everything unbounded and shivering. Mother, maybe I'll lose the syllables of my name next, ancient and observing, still, like the way rice farmers wade into their crop after the monsoon swallowed them whole. This is a lesson on everything sacred. Ma, I forgot my name before I learned to blink. We promised to keep culture like dollars and gum wrappers, stashed in inside-out pockets tumbled and dried in the wash, bleached and chlorinated by city swimming pools, floating pieces of ourselves blanched in cauliflower and contamination. This is how letters forget themselves. This is how a daughter loses the weight of her tongue in her mouth, replaces it with a borrowed accent, a softer L, a rumbling A, a smeared R, toothpick consonants, dissonance. 
Ma, we were Indian until we weren't. Meanwhile, I pretend I am cultured. I read Dickinson, structure culture around the line breaks of my own ignorance. Outside, the sun melts into itself, and I am thinking of all the ways to say that I am lost. The crumpled syllables cramping in my mouth. This is not poetry anymore. This is what happens when a daughter forgets where her lungs are, what they were made of. Ma, I'm losing parts of myself every day, leaving bits of human when I walk. Buttons, sweater strings, rosin dust, crushed bottles of water, words and words and worlds, latex gloves and frozen over car lots downtown. Mustard seed heat dying immigrant dreams. Silence. I want to question whether these are the things that make up the constellations of my genetics, the silence of my voice. But even I know nothing is silent about life. I've lost more than I've ever lost in 16 years. I've started shedding ethnicity like hair. Mother, I fear I'll go bald. It's striking that as a poet and a writer, how helpless you would feel losing a language. Yeah. um, It's hard to, you know, realize that something that's, you know, such an integral part of your culture um, is something that you no longer share with the rest of your family. But I think the important thing about um, culture is that I realized after writing this poem that I don't need to, you know, be able to speak my language to be Indian American. Um, It's kind of taught me that, you know, I am Indian American because of, you know, my upbringing, the stories that I've been taught, you know, the times that I've had with my family and my culture. So in a way, it's kind of reconciled that sort of disparity that I would have felt. When did you first start writing poetry and what drew you to the genre? Yeah, I first started writing poetry, um, I believe I was in middle school and I'd always been a fiction sort of girl. I would always, you know, check out the maximum number of books from the library when I was in elementary school. But when I I was in middle school, um, I was attracted to poetry because of how simple, um, how simple it was and how I could express all these complicated um, emotions uh, in, you know, just one, one or two lines or in a few stanzas. I think that was the thing that really drew me to it, the subtlety and how quickly I could produce, you know, a nuanced idea. Okay, Maya, the, the weight of words and the feelings that poetry can evoke are clearly very important to you. Um, In fact, I'm reminded that in your introduction video, you included a quote from poet Robert Frost. Could you share that with our listeners and talk about what it means to you? A poem begins as a lump in the throat, a sense of wrong, a homesickness, a lovesickness. So I think this quote really exemplifies the writing process. Um, Because poetry has really helped me put into words all these feelings that I never knew I could name, um, like displacement, um, things like that. And it's really been a process of finding myself all over again. So I think that writing really starts off with an ache to change something or to see something in your life that wasn't there before. And I think that's why, um, as writers, you know, we write poetry or we write books is to convey that sort of feeling so more people will understand and realize that 
they're not alone in their own feelings. The idea that poetry can be an act of creation and connection is one that strikes a chord with Gopal, too. Gopal, could you talk about the connection that you make with readers when you write poetry? So the reason why I think poetry has that kind of dual um, effect is because not only does the poet create a piece of art, something that could stand alone completely by itself, it's, it also creates a moment, kind of an experience with the audience. And since poetry, and, and from, my, from my experience, poetry has, for the large part, been something that I read on paper, um, something that I can take my time with, especially as I'm reading. It's, it's, an, it's an active connection because the enjoyment of the poem and the experience of, of feeling that poem is half the writer and half the reader because what the reader brings to the table is something the writer could never imagine. It, they bring a lifetime of experience um, and a whole colorful history of life that they've lived that could shade kind of how the poem um, responds and reacts to them. So anytime people write, whether it's poetry or even fiction or really anything, it's the experience, the act of absorbing what's written is requires this kind of dual um, interplay between the writer and the reader. You really put yourself out there with your poetry, and yet you say that it protects your soul. How do those dualities work? It protects my soul because what, as I practice writing, I practice being myself. Because every time I write a poem, I kind of take, the, take a little vial and pour out a little tincture of myself into a small, um, either small truth or a small piece of work or a piece of art that is invariably myself because I'm the one who made it, but it also shows me a different side of myself that I didn't really know. So I get to learn more, not only about my soul or my spiritual life or um, kind of my, my mental health, but also more about the things that I experience. Poetry in a way, in many ways actually, is kind of like a filter for me because it helps me go through my day or go through my life and try to, scan and try to pan like like as if I'm painting for gold, try to find a couple nuggets of something worth writing about and hopefully in my own way bring my talents to the table of kind of looking at things from a visual or connective perspective where I'm trying to bring together other fields um, and see what can come out of those. Even if it's a kind of cliche topic, that's when having that's when knowing who you are and knowing your style and knowing what you'd like that's when that can help make that something that's not cliche, something that's interesting. Using your writing as a form of self-exploration, Maya, is something that you practice too, right? You talk about writing poetry as a way to better understand your identity and to fill in the gap between who you are and who you are expected to be. Could you tell us what that means to you and perhaps fill our listeners in a little bit about your background? So I'm a first-generation Indian American. A lot of my work deals with the foreigner experience, um, assimilation, and identity. And I do think that poetry has helped me fill in the gaps in my own identity. I see myself as an American, but also um, as an American with a strong Indian heritage. So I think that poetry has helped me realize that culture has no boundaries and that um, and that it really 
helps me understand how poetry can bring out the foreigner in all of us. And it can teach us that, you know, we might be different on the outside, but on the inside, our thoughts and our feelings and our stories are pretty similar. On that note, let's listen to Gopal read one of his poems. It's called Refugee. Refugee. He said that he was from where the river flows, that he took tea with salt and sand, that he mixed water and oil in his veins. He thought that the shadows were slower on this side of the coast, that the rain fell thicker in here, that the ground forgot herself. He smelled of dust and honey, like a bee stripped of stripes and spike, just formless fuzz and two open eyes. His wings were clipped, memories of an easier home lost to beige wind. He seemed a sandbox of all things foreign, a stone skipped across star-dunes seas. An older moon closed his eyes, a hotter kiln hardened his skin, a wetter sun forged his steel. I didn't know him, no. I saw his face among the crowd, on sidewalks in the streets. Our fingers never touched. I never felt the whirl of his warmth, of himself. But then I saw, he had a sister, and what else could he need to prove his humanity to me? Now, Adam Kachuri joins us by phone. Adam is the Humanities Curriculum Coordinator for grades 6 to 12 for Southbridge Public Schools in Massachusetts. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Suzanne. Appreciate it. We're delighted. Uh, On a personal note, I'm thrilled to hear what's going on up in your neck of the woods. My mom grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, so not far from where you are. Tell me about your school district and what's the scoop there? Sure. Um, we are in year one of state takeover, so we're in a turnaround situation. So the state has appointed a receiver to act as sort of superintendent uh, to provide stability and a new infrastructure to support students so that all students succeed. Um, we have some pretty low standardized test scores for as far as the state's concerned. And so we're doing a tremendous amount of work around uh, supporting learning, and that will ultimately have you know, an effect on our, our standardized test scores. And I understand that it's something of a rural area there where you are. Is that the case? Sort of. It's, it's, it's an odd um, location in the sense that we are incredibly close to Worcester, which is a fairly large city, um, but there's really no direct major highway that connects us to anywhere else within the state. And so to get onto the major highways, you have to go through other towns. Uh, so in, in we're isolated in one sense, but um, we have a very diverse population because of industry that at one time was here. Um, and so it, it, it presents some really interesting challenges and some really wonderful opportunities to experience other cultures and to learn from one another. Great. Could you tell us about the poetry initiative that you started there? Well, actually, I can't take credit for the initiative itself. Um, there's been a poetry club for the last couple of years. Uh, and this year, it's 
being run by two wonderful educators in the middle school, uh, a math teacher and an English teacher, uh, Miss Matthew and Mr. Snyder. And they've kind of been helming this club and providing a wonderfully safe environment for kids to find artistic ways to express their feelings. And so I kind of see my job as an administrator is just to provide opportunities um, venues in which they can share these things that are on their hearts and their minds and kind of allow them to uh, be celebrated authors in that regard. And could you tell us about some of the student poets you have or the student poets you've discovered and something about their performances in front of other students? Absolutely. So uh, the Poetry Club has 10 to 15 kids that participate weekly. And we started a literacy initiative in the middle school uh, the middle school and the high school are a combined building, even though they're two separate schools. And this is a club that both sides, both the middle school and the high school, are allowed to participate in. And so we have this big literacy initiative called We Read Big. And we wanted to talk about why the word is so important. And there's this link between poets as authors and understanding and, and having access to interpret literature. And so our kids got up and they were amazing. They, they spoke from their hearts and their challenges, uh, from the death of loved ones to, you know, experiencing trauma. And in front of 500 kids, these brave poets stood up and shared their experiences. And there were a lot of tears in the audience. It was incredibly moving. Um, our teachers were moved, not necessarily realizing what some of the kids that were up on stage have gone through. And just to hear their story of perseverance and where they are as a result, and to have the ability to express themselves in such a way that it elicited all of these emotions in other people. It was just, it really was a beautiful experience to see. One of the things that we are going to be doing with our students, we're having them kind of work on a portfolio of writing, and then they're going to curate their best pieces. And we're going to create a website that houses videos of them reciting their poetry. And so that's one of the things that they're in the process of doing. And we'll cut a bunch of film and kind of have them on different locations throughout the building and in the kind of surrounding area um, just as another way to kind of self-express and get their words out. That's a terrific idea. Who are some of the poets and authors the students are drawn to? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm not so, I mean, I know they're reading other poets, but I, I honestly think that the biggest influences are each other in the room. So as one kid is talking about their experience, it resonates with them in a way that then makes them think about how that could change a poem that they already wrote. So I, there's a lot of workshopping that's happening um, in these after-school clubs where they're, they're kind of giving warm and cool feedback on each other. I mean, it's, it really is an impressive space that these two teachers have created because these kids are sharing very personal details about themselves through their own artistic expression. But yet, they're able to take this feedback and this criticism because it, it clearly is done out of love. Based on your observations at your own school, what advice would you have for teachers or principals in other school districts who'd like to initiate a similar program? That it's valuable. I, I mean, I guess that's first and foremost, that, that poetry has value. Um, 
not just as an artistic expression, um, that, you know, there is a correlation between students learning how to express themselves and kind of applying the craft of an author uh, to their own work and then being able to interpret it in others is only going to have major um, impact and, and pay dividends in these scores um, that most states have for accountability. Um, beyond that, finding a staff member or staff members um, that are willing to be vulnerable and kind of share their own thoughts and their own poetry and kind of set the table for experiences to happen in their room where kids are willing to open up and share their thoughts. And that's something that I think our, our two teachers um, have done a wonderful job with. It sounds like many teachers in your school have done a great job with that. I noticed with your We Read Big initiative that teachers really put themselves out there within videos and posters of their favorite books and really trying to reach yeah. the students. We have an incredibly dedicated staff um, that are, I mean, a lot of our staff is new because we are in year one of turnaround. Um, so a lot of new folks are entering into the, the profession and into our building, maybe from another district. And they want to see, you know, kids being able to express themselves and they want to see this growth. And so, yeah, there's been a lot of enthusiasm for both um, the classroom libraries that we've installed in the building, as well as um, sharing their own stories about literature and their quest in literacy. We spoke with a student poet this week, and she talked about how music really influences her own poetry. She studies music. Mm. I wondered if you have a music program in your school as well, and if you see the influence of music in your students' poetry. Absolutely. Ironically, a lot of the poets are also in band. Um, and we have an amazing, amazing high school uh, music director. And he is, I mean, in year one of him being here, they've already won competitions. You know, they're, they're going all over the place. They're playing in parades, very innovative. And he's, he's teaching things on the technical side, how to edit audio waves and, and create digital music. Um, and another one of our music teachers is actually trying to collaborate with the poetry club to have students poetry being read behind some of the music that their students are also coming up with. Neat. Uh, for the students who yeah. have participated in, in all of this, in the music and in the poetry, what changes have you seen in their, whether it's their demeanor, their self-confidence or their behavior? I think self-confidence um, when talking to some of the kids and then talking to, you know, the, the two coordinators of this um, club, that that's probably the thing that, stuck out to them the most, that kids who were very shy, kids who were reserved, um, found their voice. And I mean, it, it takes some serious guts to be able to stand up in front of an auditorium of all of your peers and lay your soul bare um, with the experiences that you've gone through and through these, these words that you've crafted. So that's, that's the thing that kind of bounces off me the most is that they have been able to have a voice, a voice that matters, a voice that demands to be heard. And so that self-confidence, I think, is absolutely reflective in, in the work that's going on now. 
you know, one of the things that we're, we're looking into right now is potentially even self-publishing some of these, these poems as a collection, an anthology of their work, which I think then you have the opportunity to have, a, you know, an author's night and a book signing. And, you know, I think that will continue to raise awareness for this club. I'm intrigued that a math teacher is a mentor here. Could you tell us more about that, how that came to be? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I think he just loves the word, loves, loves hip hop music, loves rap. And so for him, this is an artistic expression that resonates. And so he, this, this for him was a very natural output. He he's into the idea as I think we all are that students need to find their voice and that their voice matters and that their voice has value. And by learning to use that voice, uh, powerful things can happen. And I, th- I think that is sort of the impetus of his involvement in this program. Great. And I would love if you have any anecdotes of any about any of the students that you could share with us, a student coming to you with excitement, mm. having discovered a work of literature or a poem or having written his or her own poem. I'm sure our listeners would love that. Sure. Um, I was talking to a student who was having a really rough time. Um, a loved one passed away not too long ago and we're just talking and I asked her, you know, is there anything that you're doing to kind of get your feelings out there? How are you processing this? And she pulled out her phone and in her phone, I mean, easily, easily a hundred poems she had written in her, her notepad on her phone. And she just began to read them. And, and that's, I guess that's the power in poetry, right? It, it connects us to our humanity. It connects us to these feelings that we all feel. And therefore, when you hear this, it resonates. And I asked her after she finished reading, you know, how, how do you feel? She said, I feel a little bit better by being able to write this. And, you know, this particular student's not at the place where she's, she's willing to necessarily read publicly, but the fact that she's, she's, capturing her words and capturing these emotions and these thoughts that she's experiencing um, is a wonderfully cathartic experience. Um, and so it's, it's neat to see kids kind of glom onto that concept. Oh, that's wonderful. I wish that student all the best. I hope she makes it into one of your publications. It's great to talk to you and you're doing such Likewise. wonderful work. Uh, we really recognize at Scholastic how crucial this is for kids in giving them a voice and, and a future. You guys have been wonderful partners, so I, 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 I thank you for that. Take care. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Take care. My great thanks again to our guests for joining us, and thank you for listening. Before we send you on your way, I'd like to leave you with one last poem from national student poet Maya Ishvarin. This one is called Dislocated. My knee takes twice the typical time to heal. I dislocated it falling down the stairs a month ago and got a black rubbery brace to wear for a while. A punchline, a joke, a stale limp, the waiting. Waiting tastes like lukewarm coffee and smells like pungent Sharpie and gives me a headache. I doodle to pass the time. Little starfish seashells, black cherries, orchids that unfold themselves like teenage girls. Realize this town tastes like waiting, all the calm of a local coffee shop 
vintage clothing stores, three schools huddled next to each other like newborn puppies, strollers and diapers and graduation diplomas and Sharpies on sale, heavy-duty cardstock and glitter glue, false eyelashes, your first haircut all on the same street, jeans with holes in the knee straight from the store, sidewalk chalk of giraffes and city streets and blood-red cherries, town symbiotic and floating, this town is a breath I have held in my lungs for years. I don't even know everyone's names in my graduating class. Once I scratched my name in the side of my school and it was exhilarating. Still there, beaming with all the brightness that comes with doing something secretly. That hide and go seek high, tree swing madness. I am 18. Isn't that supposed to mean something? I'm old enough to buy cigarettes, but young enough to know that's not even cool anymore. I don't have a car, and I try to do my laundry, but always end up missing sock pairs. I still cry over sad books and miss being five. I don't even know if this makes me a millennial. I don't remember my locker combination either, but that doesn't really matter anymore. Growing up is like forgetting who you once were, swallowing adulthood like a pill from the pharmacy. Forgetting you scratched your name in the side of a school building, fell down the steps and dislocated your knee. That you used to eat ice cream straight out of the container at midnight. That you used to doodle starfishes with bruised purple Sharpie. I am dislocated. Inside, outside, under my skin, still waiting, waiting, waiting for something to change. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to Scholastic Reads in iTunes. That'll help more book lovers find us.